The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is for Master Dogen's Koen Shobogenzo. The main case. Zhao Zhou was once asked by a student, before the world existed, there was already the original nature. When the world is destroyed, true nature is not destroyed. What is this indestructible nature? Zhao Zhou said, the four great elements and five skandhas. The student said, they're destroyed. What is this indestructible nature? Zhao Zhou said, the four great elements and five skandhas. Dharosha's commentary. Caught in the double barrier of permanence and impermanence, this student comes to Zhaozhou looking for answers. In a flash of lightning, the old master snatches up everything at once, leaving the student with nothing to hold on to. Because from the beginning, the student doesn't understand their own true nature. They persist with their question. Zhao seeing the student still lingering in duality, compassionately, repeats himself. Don't you see? When a single flower blooms, the earth arises. When a single speck of dust appears, the universe is born. But before the speck of dust arises, before the flower opens, what is it? Where do you find yourself? What is this indestructible nature? Based on my studies, the word nature became very important in Buddhism and Chan. It wasn't really a word that was spoken of so much in the original teachings. And I'm glad that it came into the lexicon. Nature is the phenomenal world. It's what we think of, we might think of it as the non-human created world. But then where does that leave us? Right? Are we not nature? I remember in the early years in the city when I was there and we were starting the Earth Initiative and doing different programs, a student came up to me and said, I care about the world, but I don't really like nature. <laughs> and I said, which I took, I think meant, you know, camping and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, how do you feel about the clothes you're wearing? That book that you're holding in your hand that coffee that you're drinking. Where do you think that comes from? What is that? And nature also carries a sense of a force, a great force. Anyone who's been in the forces of nature recognizes how powerful in an instant and in a sense how vulnerable we are as human beings. And it also carries a sense of an innate or essential quality of something, the nature of something. And so Buddha nature, self-nature, original nature, the indestructible nature, and Buddhism is referring to that which is not created. The Buddha said all compounded existence is dukkha. Anything you can make is going to come apart. You can't rely on it, not in any ultimate sense. And so is there anything that isn't created, that doesn't come apart? So the uncontrived, uncreated reality of things, 
that which is not the result of something, that is not the result of a force, no matter how powerful it might be. And so we speak of self-nature, of your original face, of mu, the sound of one hand, of Buddha nature. These are all pointing to the same thing. So the student understands something before the world existed. This original nature already was there. When the world is destroyed, it will not be destroyed because it hasn't been created. Right? Therefore, it, it doesn't exist in that way. What is that nature? The student is asking. And so this is our birth and death ango. We're studying these fascicles of Dogen, this early sutra of the Buddha. Dogen says in Undivided Activity, quietly think over whether birth and all things that arise together with birth are inseparable or not. There is neither a moment nor a thing that is apart from birth. There is neither an object nor mind that is apart from birth. And so it's easy to say that all is one. Lots of people are saying that. What does that mean? I'm sitting here looking at you. You're sitting here looking at me. We can't deny that. So what does all is one mean? Why is this indestructible nature important? Why don't we just follow the precepts and live well? Right? Every religious tradition basically understands that, the golden rule. But why do we have so much, such a hard time doing those things that seem so clear and obvious and self-evident? If we all did this, this would all be different. <laughs> right? So let's all do this. But we know. And so the Buddha wanted to understand. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter. Right? That we're never going to just all come into agreement. And even if we all come into agreement, how long are we going to stay in agreement? Can we even come into agreement with ourselves? And so, what is this indestructible nature? What is the heart of the matter? Jajo said the four great elements and the five skandhas. Well, the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, sometimes space is included, sometimes consciousness is included, those things by their nature are changing constantly. Some things are changing right before our eyes. Some things are changing. It's hard to see, like a mountain, like a star. But all of those things are compounded. They're all passing. They're the very embodiment of change. And anything that we make of those elements, same thing. They're going to come apart. They seem very destructible. The skandhas the Buddha made very clear from the beginning, are dukkha. He said, birth is dukkha, and aging, and sickness, and dying is dukkha. Distress, pain, affliction, and despair are dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates bound with attachment are dukkha. It's easy to see how sickness, old age, and death, distress, pain, affliction are suffering, unsatisfying, Disappointing, but what does he mean the five aggregates connected with attachment or dukkha? Why is the Heart Sutra, the Prajnaparamita Sutra that we chant every day, why does it begin 
Avalokiteshvara doing deep prajnaparamita clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, the aggregates. Well, those are in endless states of change, too. That's why they're dukkha. They're constantly moving. When the Buddha said, and so form this, we become aware of it, we have sensations, right? we experience those as pleasant or unpleasant, we have perception, we identify it, locate it in our body, and if it's an external form, we locate it externally, and it has certain characteristics, which we like or don't like, and we give those names. And then mental formations or discrimination, as we chanted in our translation, the mind then floods that with associations and memories and history and beliefs and views, and it becomes packed with ourselves. And consciousness is just being aware of all of that. So all of that is an endless state of motion and change. If those things weren't subject to change, we couldn't practice. We would be like a robot before AI, right? We'd be more like a toaster or a vacuum cleaner, you know? You're either on or off, I guess. I don't know. So when the Buddha said enlightenment or delusion is, I am this, this is me, this is mine, was he talking about the skandhas, I am this, that I identify, there's a sense that I identify myself in the form. And then in the sensations, those are me, right? That's myself in that sensation, in that perception, in the name, in my mental formations. Or this is me, that I locate myself within. I locate the skanda within myself. In other words, when, in, when I'm having those experiences, that those experiences are happening within me, within my sense of self. Or the Buddha said, delusion is seeing this is mine. And so when we're having those experiences that the skandhas describe, there's a sense of possession. These are not only me, but they belong to me. They're mine. They're not yours. And the skandhas are basically just how Buddhism talks about the person. They're, they're me. right? They're the constituent parts, the aggregates that make up what everything that I understand and experience myself to be. So, understanding that, when the student says, what is the indestructible nature, that which existed before any creation, will be there after all of it's gone. What is it that's not created, not destroyed? Which is our liberation. When the Buddha was enlightened, he was enlightened to the experience, the direct experience of that which cannot be made. So when we say Buddha nature is not, cannot be given to you or taken away, it does not increase or decrease with practice. No matter what we do with our lives, no matter how wonderful or no matter how terrible, everyone and everything has but a nature. That's that indestructible nature that we're trying to discover, make direct contact with.
see. And so Zhao Zhou says, four great elements in the five skandhas. So air or motion, water, liquid, fire, warmth, earth, solidity. Can you hold any of those things? Can you capture them? Can you locate fire within fire? Can you locate a tree? What is tree within a tree? These are the, the, the questions that need to be examined. And Dogen speaks of this. There are teachings that speak of this, that we need to actually turn our attention to and examine these things. Because not examining, we will just go along with what our senses seem to be communicating very clearly, that there is an inside and there's an outside. There's stuff happening, and sometimes it happens to me. And I like it or I don't like it. I want more of it or I want less. All of that stuff just keeps chugging along if we don't examine. When we get stuck, I mean, why do we get attached to things like, you know, different aspects of our identity, who we think we are, what we think we've accomplished? You know, as, as the Sangha continues to grow and age, and there are more students who are retiring, you know, I've been talking to more students who you know, are sincere practitioners and really are, you know, practicing well. And in retiring, some of them are speaking to me about discovering and being surprised by how much they identified with their work, right? Or as we age, how much we identified with our, our state of another age, right? Not this one. And we don't know sometimes, like we think, yeah, I think I'm, I'm okay there. Like I'm not really attached to that until suddenly it changes or it's gone. It's like, whoa. When somebody wakes up and they're not that person anymore, they don't go to that place where they did that thing and everybody said, oh, hello, you, that person who does that thing. That's not happening anymore. And they wake up and it's like, okay, who now? And the surprise of how deep within us that is, that can be. And so when we get stuck, the image is often of a ram caught in, in a fence, right? And they can't push through, but they can't pull back. It's kind of an apt image. And we can feel stuck, like in a very solid place where those elements the earth and air, fire and water of the solidity of things or the fire of things is very solid, right? Or that our experiences of it are very solid. They're just happening. They have a lot of thingness to them. But where is that solidity? Where is that name that we give to things? Where can you find it somewhere? Those qualities, can you locate them? That's the examination that we take up in practice. So Dharoshi says, caught in the double barrier of permanence and impermanence, the student comes looking for answers. In a flash of lightning, the old master snatches up everything at once and leaves the monastic with nothing to hold on to. And you know, that's spoken of in different ways in the teachings. And it's true, and it's not entirely like that, because in a way, 
nobody can take something away from you if you don't want. I mean, we can, you know, we can lose a house, somebody can steal something from you. But in terms of a sense of self and the, all the aspects of the sense of self, those aggregates of the aggregates, it's like when we hear something and it pierces us deeply. Why? Why then? Why now? When we encounter something in that sense of who we are, seems to have disappeared or, 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 or been shaken loose or been brought into question. You know, there are those things that, that tend to do that for anybody. You know, when we like aging, like sickness, like bad news from a doctor, bad news on the news, <laughs> natural disasters. You know, when the world, the way we thought it was and would be, isn't. In that way, something can be taken away, right? In a sense, without our permission. But as Evelyn Underhill says, why do those things not just have consequences in terms of what we need to do and how we live today, but why do they hurt the self? Right? When we encounter things that are basically showing us we're, we're not entirely in control of all this. There's a great deal we're not in control of. And dukkha is pretty much trying to control. It's sort of like being the master controller. It's trying to control things, both outside and inside, so that we essentially get what we want and don't get what we don't want. Right? And on some level, most practitioners, at the time of encountering the Dharma or seeking the Dharma, have begun to sniff that out. Right? They begin... Saying, well, wait a minute, I've been trying it, I've been doing all I can. I've been, I'm getting good grades, I'm getting rewards, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and just it's not complying. The world is not in compliance with my desires. People are not going along. So that's why Buddhism speaks of the different kinds of suffering. There's the suffering of just everyday pain and confusion, which is where most of us begin, right? Because we're experiencing it. That's what the Buddha is talking about. Sickness, old age, and death, pain, distress, affliction, despair. And these are hard to accept, hard to face, but that's exactly why when somebody comes here for the first time, we greet them warmly and then say, oh, come down to this seat. We have a seat for you. Now sit and find your breath. And along the way, you're going to face what you don't want to face. You're going to see what you don't want to see. And it's your own doing, right? And that's the good news. <laughs> you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. And as we do that, as things are easier to see and to recognize, as we're cultivating our practice, we begin to see the second aspect of suffering, which is change. We can't keep what we want. We can't keep away what we don't want can't always be with who we want to be with. We can't stay away from those that irritate us or annoy us. In fact, there should always be people in the Sangha that do that for you. And if there aren't, come let us know, because we're, <laughs> there's some unfinished business there. <laughs> 
how else will we see, how else will we see ourselves? How else will we face our mind? The wants and, and the non-wants. And then as we practice that, we encounter the third aspect of suffering, which is a little more difficult. The Buddha said conditioned existence. In short, the five aggregates. Right? Everything that comes together has to come apart. That's not bad news. It's just the way the world is. Sickness, old age, and death is not a mistake. Right? All of the efforts to keep that from happening. I mean, there's keeping this Buddha body healthy, of course. Right? And so Zhao Zhou says, what is the indestructible nature? The four great elements and the five skandhas. He's asking us to look deeply, directly, without any idea, into each and every aspect of the self. And all you have to do is just pay attention, because there it is. And then, what do you find? And so we have to learn how to allow that to hold, to be able to hold that in our awareness long enough to see. Because from the very beginning, when we start sitting, certainly then, if not sooner, it's all been coming. It's all been showing up. We don't pay attention, so it passes by. Or we see it, but we don't understand what we're seeing. A lot of it is that. We don't understand what we're seeing. And I don't mean conceptually. Dogen says, there's neither a moment nor a thing that is apart from birth. There's neither an object nor a mind that is apart from birth. There's nothing apart from birth. And birth, we can think of as this moment that is appearing. Not just the birth of a, a newborn baby, but the birth of a newborn moment. There's nothing apart from that. So then what is it that causes us pain and confinement? Have you ever experienced a moment of pain or distress when the self was not present? When the sense of something happening to you was not present? Check it out. Examine that. In other words, what needs to be present in the aggregates in order for us to know that we are suffering, that there is suffering, or for that matter, to know anything? The aggregates are sometimes um, sort of the image of uh, an object like a chariot going back into history. Uh, remember, the Buddha was trained to ride one, drive one, fight from one. So it was a, you know, we could talk about a car, but it's not quite as, you know, romantic. So there's the chariot. <clears throat> and so there's examining this chariot, which is, has all these aggregates, these constituent parts, right? And so where is the chariot in all of those parts, right? We can't say that the chariot is the same as each of these parts, right? So if you take it apart, you've got wheels over here, you've got an axle, you've got a body. Where's the chariot, right? So you can't say it's in the parts. Or if you took, bear with me, if you took a human body and you separated the arms and the legs, and heads over here, right? Just a magic trick, right? So where is the self? Where are you in all of that? face. We certainly sort of go to the face, but is that where your self is? What about the rest? We can't say that the chariot possesses its parts, 
right? Where is the chariot that would be in possession of its parts? When it's all strewn out there, where is the chariot now? And so we can't say that it possesses its parts. It's not a mere collection of them, because you could gather them all together. Well, that's not the chariot. And even when you put it together and say, well, there it is now. But we've already seen that the chariot is just a, 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 a coming together of these different parts. And so it's a way of trying to intellectually or conceptually look at and question, examine this notion that we take so for granted that there is a thing that exists, it has a name, it must exist. There it is. Here it is. And again, we might say, well, so what? Big deal. What's the consequence of this? Well, whose chariot is it? It's mine. Don't you go riding my chariot. Right? The consequences are immediate and inevitable. How does this body, just this body, hurt the self? Where is that hurt? When somebody says something, maybe they're trying to help you and they offer some helpful criticism, right? But we feel, oh, we don't like that, right? Or, we, and we, or maybe they're not trying to be helpful. And it's hurt. Where, it, what is hurt? Somebody spoke words, right? What is hurt? I hope that intrigues everyone in this room, that question, right? It's a good question to ask in the moment when it's happening, particularly if we see ourselves gearing up, right? Energy's rising, walls are ascending, you know, response is prepared. To step back a bit, what is actually under threat here? It has to be myself. It has to be myself. How else can we project values, notions of good or bad, onto other people? Onto physical aspects, skin color, size, gender, sexual orientation, faith, wealth, speech. Human beings seem to have no lack of, I'm reluctant to call it creativity, but no lack of uh, options when it comes to dividing. But where is the person? Where is the, even the attribute, the characteristic, the value, the good or bad, the right or wrong, in that quality, in that aspect? That's why in delusion, if you want to keep it going, do not examine, do not question, do not look, do not challenge. That's why the first thing every dictator has to do is try and shut that down and shut down anybody who's doing it. Because that's dangerous. It's dangerous to examine. It's dangerous to whatever the system is that has been built. Dogen says, there, if you search for a Buddha outside of birth and death, 
It's like trying to go south while you're headed north, trying to see the Big Dipper while you face south. You just cause yourself to remain all the more in birth and death and miss the way of emancipation. There's no self in the arms and legs, the head and the face, but they sure are useful, right? Got to admit. And it takes those parts, you know, with a reasonable amount of assembly to make up that so that we can sit and run and dance a little and do all the good things. So I was thinking about this in terms of the Sangha Harmony Advisory Council. Because what is a Sangha? That's just another name for a body. What is an order? When Dada Roshi first started to talk about an order, the Mountains and Rivers Order, many years ago, we were like, what? What is that? (laughs) He said, it's not a thing. It doesn't exist anywhere. He said, it's an idea. It's an idea to describe and sort of, sort of give a vision to what we're doing. Right? And so where is the Sangha in all of this? Is it, well, the Sangha's people, right? The Sangha treasure, virtue of harmony. But which one? Or is it when we're all together? But we're never all together, so where actually is Sangha? If it's a virtue of harmony, then that unification, is that in each one of us? Is it in something we're doing all together? And so we could think of Shaq as one of those limbs, right? One body of many bodies that is Sangha, but isn't Sangha, or is it? We have a board of directors, we have a monastic council, we have a guardian council, we have an ethics committee, we have a board of governors, we have a teacher's council. And the point of this is not to create bureaucracy, although sometimes (laughs) it can feel like that. that each of these was created, sometimes mandated by law, (laughs) sometimes by the need, by the need of the Sangha, right? The formation of the Guardian Council was created because the the model in most centers at the beginning, when Dada Roshi was beginning, was membership. You come in and you pay your dues and now you're a member. And Dada Roshi said, I don't want members, I want students. On people who are studying the Dharma. And that that doesn't happen just because you come in and you put 30 bucks on the table. That's a shift of mind. That's a, a raising of bodhicitta. There's something that happens. He said, that's the Sangha I want. Well, how do we cultivate that? Right? As we come in and we don't know what's going on. So let there be a process of inquiry a process that helps to bring that forward, that helps to sort of present that to the person so they can see, is that within themselves? Is that something that is actually going on for them? 
Are they a student? Do they want to be a student? They want to study the Dharma. And they don't have to be, right? So that we have lots of valued Sangha members who don't take that, haven't taken that step, don't take that step, and are very much students of the Dharma. And so each of these has their own function, and each of their functions is to awaken from our delusion and to create to manifest that together. It's really that. That's why it's not a bureaucracy. Each of these has that function, and if they aren't serving that function, we need to say, ask why. What function are they serving then? If that's not what they're doing, then what are they doing? And that's a real thing. That's a real thing. That's where having a sense of mission is really important. Why are we here? I talked recently and said, in a sense, it's very simple. And it's very steep. It's the transmission of the Dharma. That really is the guiding principle, the guiding force, the guiding vision of why we're here, and that we keep coming back to that. Is what we're doing serving that? Recognizing that that has many aspects. And so the the mission of the Sangha Harmony Advisory Council, and I was just thinking about, you know, how karma does its thing, right? Which is really us doing our thing, (laughs) right? And I was thinking about two years ago, maybe more, that I came to Sean and said, I have an idea. And that had started actually with a conversation that I had with a, a friend who's also a student of another center, who during one of our frequent conversations had talked about something they were doing. And I walked away and thought, hmm. I thought about that and reflected on that and, and started talking about it with the teachers about it, went to Sean, and then it started to this. And so where is Shaq in all of that? Right. When Dadaroshi says that caught in the double barrier of permanence and impermanence, he means every duality. Right? Everything is a living thing. Everything is a living thing. Everything is in a state of motion. And everything is indestructible nature. Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is in and of itself liberated. A tree is not bound by it being a sycamore or a maple. A river is not confined by being small or large. We do that. We do that to ourselves, we do that to things. And so the mission of the Sangha Harmony Advisory Council is, and I'm reading from the the document, is to create a new and more inclusive leadership body that will represent the Sangha and advise those in teacher lineage positions. And so a body of, of 12 people representing the Sangha is a tall order, right? So it can't perfectly reflect the Sangha, but that is the intention, right? I mean, if it was going to perfectly respect, you know, represent it, it'd have to be everybody be in it, and that would be hard to navigate, right? 
And so that's part of the charge, is to the best of their ability to do that, which means keep the Sangha in mind, right? Everyone. And it functions as an advisory council, right? In close communication with each other, with themselves. And so they've been here this weekend training. And thank you to Kelly, Alexander, and Ayo, who... uh, Kelly is there, is here, thank you. And I attuned ahead to leave early. And everyone, and the coordinating committee who worked for a year or two to help put this all together, some of you are here also today. So you see the many hands and arms of Abhikadejrata, right, bringing this together. And, and part of the thing with a Sangha, you know, certainly of our size and and with all the things that we're doing, is so many of the really, really important things that are happening, everybody doesn't get to see, right? It's just not practical, right? And so you didn't get to see all of these conversations that were happening, right? And the, and the, the thoughts and the ideas and the drafting and redrafting and going back and looking at it again and having conversations and sometimes not having agreement and coming back again. And in a way, it's unfortunate you know, but you'd have to quit your day job and you'd have to just stay home and, I don't know, somehow <laughs> watch it all happen somewhere. But to know that that is happening, right? And the danger with not knowing is, is people can think, well, nothing is happening, right? But remember, this thing is alive. And our commitment and our desire the teachers, the seniors, the monastics, is to keep it alive, because nobody wants to be in a dead thing. I mean, do any of you want to be in a dead thing? God, I hope not. And if you're looking for that here, I hope you're frustrated (laughs) (laughs) and not finding that dead thing. (laughs) And so know that that is an ongoing process, right? And it's not that in every moment, every day, everything's on the table. It's not. We're just taking care of things. We're just training. But when a need appears, and sometimes it appears again and again and again, and then we realize, oh, something's happening here. Something, we are being called. Right? Something is showing up, and it's not just showing up once. What is it calling us to? What is being asked for? What is that cry that is being called out, right? And how do we understand it? How is it to be understood, right? And compassion, when you're trying to help somebody, very rarely does somebody say, I need your help, and this is what's going on, and this is what would really help me. Do it. It doesn't work like that. So we have to become adept at reading the signs and caring, right? about this living thing, so that we're staying in close contact with it. And so to help promote unity and harmony and inclusivity and diversity within the Sangha, and to help create an MRO culture, which is just a way of being together in what we do, in our vision, in which people of all identities and a range of abilities feel welcome and supported, particularly those from groups that have been historically underrepresented or excluded. You know, Training is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to do what we have been sort of trained not to do. 
to face, to examine, to tolerate, to be patient, to take responsibility, to be still, to keep showing up, right, when it's difficult to show up. And so it's difficult for everybody, right? I mean, it's always been like that. That's something we share in common. But it's more difficult for some. It's more difficult when sort of dominant aspects of dominant culture have create, created sort of, you know, um, dominant aspects of training. Or when a person just walks in a room and doesn't really see anybody that looks like them. Or sees other, or, or, or has other aspects of their own being that they don't see. It's difficult, right? And it's difficult for those who have not had that experience to know that that's happening. When it's happening right in front of them. And so something that is difficult for everybody becomes more difficult. For reasons that aren't intended. And that it has taken us a long time to even realize we're there, we're present. And so see how, how this is so part and parcel of our bodhisattva vow to alleviate suffering. Because we're not going to stop sickness, old age, and death. (laughs) There are certain things that we don't control. Buddhism is addressing unnecessary suffering. And this, this shack arises out of long, long histories, legacies, of suffering inflicted on groups of people that we've inherited. We didn't create them. We didn't ask for them. But we live in a time where they're still active. And they're active within us and amongst us. And so to empower people from diverse backgrounds to promote horizontal leadership so we can think of a strong spine, right? That sort of traditional you know, that was certainly a strength that Dada Roshi brought into his teaching, a very strong vertical spine. And maybe that was needed back then when we were wild and crazy and nobody really knew anything, <laughs> right? And we were young, so many of us were young, right? And so now a horizontal. So with a strong spine, we need strong and limber and far-reaching arms and legs, and so how do we, and then how do we work, how do we assemble this into one body that works together? There's not a lot of precedent for that, right? And so we're, we're learning, right? And I've been talking about this recently. And all the different ways that we're learning. And, you know, Dada Roshi gave a talk once years ago, said mistakes are called learning. <laughs> you know, when we make mistakes or things just had unintended consequences, or we're just, it's just wobbly. It's not even a mistake, it's just wobbly. That part of this, part of fulfilling our vows, part of practicing being a bodhisattva, is being within delusion. Facing it within ourselves, facing it within others, where it has impact, it has consequences. But we recognize, oh, this is arising out of karmic causes and conditions. There's a reason 
this thought is arising. There's a reason why we act the way we do, we respond the way we do. It's called conditioning. Right? There's a reason that institutions or organizations come into being in certain ways, and since they've been taught to. And so, um, so here we are. In a way, it's very simple. Ultimately, it always comes down to being very simple. Right? Sometimes when things are very difficult, we make things much more complicated to try and find our way through, and exactly the opposite needs to happen. Pare it down, pare it down, pare it down. What's really happening? What's, what's underlying this? What's underlying this? What's underlying this? Get to the heart of the matter. And so, it's a good day for bringing forth our beloved community and committing in this way and new ways to making that more and more. So let me end with a poem. After the cold rains, a new morning, never before. Snow melts and soon the glory of spring flowers. Each one beautiful carries its ancestors with its face turned to the sun. Each one seeking life and the offering of many gifts. Each one calling out for you to stop and look and see. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.